Intro. 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 Yes. Welcome to Flywheel, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, well, you come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and we are here to help you harness the power of the flywheel and talk about people helping, you know, harness the power of the AMM. We had on the fellas from Ambient. We had on Doug and we had on me, you, uh, to talk about what they're building and what they just came out with. Uh, Kit, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, first of Ambient Finance, a.k.a. CrocSwap. In case those have Crop been swap. around since, yeah. uh, you know, earlier, you, you know that Nan- always be, honestly, like the Cro- I will always remember Crocswap because I remember reading about it and how cool it was, and how same, cool it same. is, it, you know, and everything that they've developed since. Yeah, because I remember Crocswap was going to be built on Barra Chain. I was like, oh, maybe they're going with like a zoo theme, you know, <laughs> some kind yeah. of animal theme here with every <laughs> one of their DeFi protocols. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dave, I was. I love Doug's background. This man comes yeah. from a very rich experience set, and now he's going to bring in all of that into DeFi. And obviously, MeU is a great product designer. The UI is amazing on their, their mm-hmm. product, which is Ambient.Finance. But yeah, how about you, Dave? What, yeah, what should the listeners of, be attention to, uh, paying attention yeah, to? It's, speaking of rich, it's incredibly the feature-rich the product that they built, like all the different you know mechanisms they have, whether it's dynamic fees, whether it's knockout liquidity, and whether it's all this other stuff. So, uh, but I think like the number one theme of this is, you know, they're really trying to fight for the little guy. I, I you know, I came into this as like, oh, this is their war on toxic flow. But coming out of this, this is like, oh, they're like the Robin Hood of AMMs. And so I was right. paying attention to that. What do you think? No, I, I think you're you're spot on. Like you could just feel that underdog energy and that rebel that yeah. this team is trying to fight for for the AMM yeah. space. And I, I'm going to use it. I'm going to drop it. This is a capital P primitive. Another one. Capital P. Another. Another one. one. I'm calling it. <laughs> and if you want to see Kit judge if something's a capital P primitive every week, make sure you hit that bell button, subscribe, leave us a comment, let us know what you think, give us a like. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Make sure you join our Telegram group at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. Welcome back, everyone, to this edition of Flywheel. I'm your host, DeFi Dave, here with Capital K. Capital K and today, we have on the folks from Ambient Finance, formerly known as CrocSwap, we have on Doug, who is the co-founder, and Miyu, who leads uh, business development. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on. We've been diving deep into uh, your AMM, and we're decided to break it down for everyone. Hey, awesome. uh, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really excited. Yeah, so uh, you know, let's dive in a little bit on your guys' backgrounds. Um, so, how do you? What is your you know background before crypto, and how did you get into AMMs? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, so before crypto, I was a uh, HFT quant for, for a while, about a decade. Uh, started at Citadel, 
um, doing equities and then the dark been, side, <laughs> the dark side. Yeah, exactly. And then I've uh, been on some number of smaller teams in, in various markets uh, around the world, futures and uh, equities uh, kind of randomly got into MEV in uh, 2020, right around DeFi summer. Just thought it was interesting. Um, kind of started as a side project and, and then took over full time. I uh, did MEV for a while. Uh, so was interacting with AMMs a lot. And then uh, kind of when Uni V3 came out or first announced, I thought it was a really interesting concept, but there were a number of ways to improve it. Uh, then started CrocSwap and, and have been here since. Um, Mio, I'll let, I'll let you go. Yeah, Mio, go ahead. Yeah, uh, my background's uh, not as interesting as Doug's. Uh, basically, before, before crypto and, and DeFi, I was uh, doing more design-based things. Like things like architecture, building design. Um, and then kind of post-COVID, late 2020, 2021, uh, kind of got into trading and crypto and DeFi and just kind of um, AMMs was a really interesting part of that, you know, just the microstructure of, of order flow and things like that. So it was uh, great to start working with Doug. Yeah, Doug, you said that you worked at Citadel, and I, I think I read somewhere that you worked there for 10 years. I'm really no, curious. I, I, only worked there, I only worked there a couple of years. I, I worked in HFT for 10 years. Oh, you worked in HFT for 10 yeah, years yeah. in Citadel for a bit. So yeah. what lessons did you learn at your time at Citadel? Yeah, um, a, a couple of things. I, I guess the biggest is just kind of these small things around um, either, well, really HFT, like, a lot of people think it's synonymous with being a market maker or providing liquidity, but uh, like in HFT, actually, uh, quote unquote, take, taking liquidity is uh, just just as popular, if not more lucrative than providing liquidity. Um, so I, I guess you really just learn, um, you don't really learn anything about stocks or futures uh, from like a macro perspective or even like what makes a company move day to day, but you do learn like what makes things move second to second. So like, for example, I traded, traded Japan, Japanese equities. Um, if anyone's familiar with that market, like the, the stock symbols are actually just numbers. Um, I didn't really even know. <laughs> I, I knew some of them knew like what Toyota was, but most of the time when I was trading, I just know that's like two, two, seven or, or whatever. Um, so you, 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 it's, it's kind of weird, right? You don't learn anything about the actual things that you're trading, but you do learn, right, like how these mechanics work on, mm. on a very low level, which which I think is is pretty important. Um, and there, right, there are all these like tiny games at like a very, very low level. Like superficially, you think trading is just, oh, uh, Alice wants to buy at this price. Bob wants to sell at this price. Um, and, you know, right, we have a match and they should be able to buy or sell. Um, in reality, right, like, Alice and Bob have um, different different information, right? And if Alice knew exactly what Bob knew, um, then might, she might want to trade or might not want to trade. So really like at this very fine grain level, there's there's this dance between like who, who knows what and like how uh, information gets uh, incorporated in, into markets. So yeah. I, I think that's kind of the most fascinating thing. And you said something there at the beginning of that. You said... Uh taking liquidity it's not just providing liquidity and take but taking liquidity which is a term i have not used before so what did you mean by like taking liquidity yeah yeah so um typically like in, in an order book context um high frequency traders will be divided into like makers and and takers um so makers are like market market makers like 
you would normally think, and most times they're willing to buy at you know some price and willing to sell at a slightly higher price, and they're hoping that you know just buy, uh, they'll buy you know fifty five dollars and sell fifty five dollars one cent, and you know you kind of make make that spread. So superficially, that's like an easy business, mm-hmm. um, right? As long as as long as things work out for you. Um, the other side of that though is is takers, and they exist. Um, they're not providing. And, and right, people can mix and match like parts yeah. of the strategy, but but right, like at high level, like and some people just do taking, like so some firms just mm. basically only do taking, and all, all they do is they sit there and they watch the order book, and um, they're not placing any orders, they're not providing liquidity, their orders aren't resting, they're just waiting till uh, you know they have internal signals and like their signal uh, is more aggressive than the price, and they say okay, for a very common thing is uh, like the index futures um, will trade. In Chicago, the S&P 500 index futures, they're much more liquid than like any individual stock. So if you have a very fast connection to Chicago, from New York to Chicago, you wait till the index futures move up and then you just go to like individual stocks and just buy them quickly before anyone can adjust adjust their quotes. So uh, takers are, are kind of like snipers, mm. I guess. Yeah, that's interesting because I've always thought of, you know, market makers as making markets and providing liquidity. I've never really thought of market makers as being takers before, but if they have that edge and like you were talking about with information asymmetry, then it makes sense that like, oh, we're just takers in this field. Yeah. And a lot of times, uh, you know, there's various research on this, but a lot of times, actually, if you dive into it, um, look on an aggregate level, takers are uh, just as profitable, if not actually a lot more profitable than makers. Oh. So that's like kind of a funny. Yeah. So, oh, interesting. You, you mentioned something about being, you know, a faster. And when I think of HFT, the word flash boys just come to my mind right away. And like, how accurate is the reality uh, <laughs> versus what Michael Lewis painted? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not not a huge fan of uh, that book. It's it's pretty entertaining. Uh, it's a very entertaining book. I don't think it's right hugely accurate. So I, I mean, I think the biggest misconception someone will get from reading that going away is that um, if if like they think like someone can see your order kind of before it reaches the market, and that actually does happen with like MEV and sandwich attacks, but but generally like in a TradFi market, um, that doesn't happen because the time your order reaches the gateway at the exchange, it's atomically matched. And, um, you know, people can kind of infer like what you might do next, which which is an issue if you're a big trader. But if you're, you're a small trader, um, it's not really an issue. There's also like with U.S. equities, there's multiple different exchanges. So I think there there was like a problem um, in, in the book, the, the heroes of the book or whatever, where uh, not like kind of slicing their orders correctly. So like someone would see, oh, they had an order at NASDAQ and then like inferring, oh, you're probably going to take take it NYSE or or whatever. So I, I don't know, an entertaining book, but uh, not, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say it's the most accurate, at least from personal viewpoint. Mm, got it. Um, now, so with that background, now let's dive into Ambient, um, which was first announced as CrocSwap in 2021. So for... The viewers at home, can you describe, you know, what Ambient is? And for those who remember when CrocSwap was announced, I think everybody's <laughs> wondering uh, what took so long for it to come out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think, right, like we we had our original vision in 2021, which I think was a, was a good vision, and we're still building on on top of it. Um, 
the uh, you know, but I, I think what we realized, particularly as things went from the bull market to the bear market, was that uh, kind of dethroning Uniswap would be a lot tougher um, than we originally imagined. So basically, the version of uh, Ambient that we have out now is basically I'd say it's like CrocSwap V2 um, mm. from that perspective. So we just decided we we had to kind of come out with with something even. I, I think the first version we had was great, but it wasn't kind of great good enough to dethrone the monopoly and, and kind of like what we saw as a bull market, you had all kinds of Dexas would start up and, and get a bunch of TVL and then kind of in the bear market, those all, those all went away. So if, if you actually look at the market now, like Uniswaps uh, of like real organic, like trading just, and, and not counting like stable coins, like volatile pairs, just mm-hmm. very, very high percentage. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say there's, there's two theses, like with what we have now and really what we focused on building from like the original version of, of CropSwap or, or kind of at least building the platform so we can build these things. The first is, um, and, and Miu can probably talk about this a lot more than I can. Um, the first is like, we want it to not only get the protocol right, but get the actual application right. And, and kind of, we wanted to make sure that the application looked and field and, and, and drove kind of like a centralized exchange, um, we're not a big fan of like most of the DeFi, uh, particularly the DEXs out there don't really feel like something you'd spend a lot of time trading on. So uh, Miu is kind of the uh, brain behind that. So I don't, actually, Miu, I don't know if you, you want to say anything from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you summed it up pretty well. But yeah, uh, a lot of our focus over this past time has just been on improving the UX around, um, you know, DEXs and like there's a lot of simplified swap interfaces, which function fine, you know, the basic Uniswap module, of, you know, swap this to this. But I think especially on the LP side, there's a lot of room to improve that process. Um, and then more generally, just the, the entire process. So we, we kind of have, you know, somewhat of a block explorer basically built into the deck so you can sort of see your own transactions and others' transactions like much easier. So oh, wait, there's a block really... explorer in the decks. That's really well, cool. It's really cool. You can actually, so a lot of people were trying to get more education, but yeah, it's really cool. Like even on our candle chart, you can click any single candle and then see exactly like what transactions happened, happened in that candle. Oh, so that's really cool, useful. Cool little Easter eggs there. Yeah. Yeah. Not Easter eggs, features. Yeah. Use them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah what, what was interesting about last cycle, uh, Uniswap was by far the most forked protocol. Uh, you know, you saw Sushi Swap come out with their vampire attack. And then with all these different chains, they each had their different flavor of Uniswap and UniV2. Um, so like observing like, you know, you know, and like you said, Uniswap is the top dog. Uh, you didn't see a way to, you know, challenge Uniswap with V1 basically. So you basically waited until you were comfortable with V2 to come out. What do you think like makes Uniswap like have its uh, top position? Like, why do you think, you know, there hasn't been like a challenger just yet? Yeah, I, I think... DXs have gotten, well, AMMs have gotten a lot more, even just V3 to V2 is a big complexity ramp up. I think V2 mechanics of that are, are fairly simple. So forking and even kind of doing other stuff, small, small modifications on top of V2 is not super technically challenging. V3, like concentrated liquidity, like, like we all know how concentrated liquidity works, but like the underlying math of like concentrated liquidity gets pretty hairy. And then like even Beyond that, now with like what we have with our hooks or like Uniswap V4's hooks, um, I think uh, things get even more complex, right? Because now you have like, right? Like the the DEX is not even just uh, like 
Dex becomes like a platform, like something you build on top of. So I, I think like things are just getting more complicated. So like mm-hmm. the number of teams that can kind of do like kind of the, the minimum barrier to entry is, is higher. Um, but also, also just in general, I, I think, right. Like there hasn't been a lot of innovation in the mechanism. There, I think there's been a ton of innovation in Dex Ponzi nomics, right? Like how do I build a Dex and then I kind of have all kinds of creative, creative ways to vampire tag or get tokens or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which works really well in a bull market. But, but I don't think anyone is, you know, people have played around, but I don't see any like huge um, sea changes in like how the actual mechanics of an AMM work. Like, I don't think there's really anything out there besides us where uh, <laughs> the, like the AMM itself is like a huge improvement over Uniswap. So like naturally kind of their, their position as, as the leader is just going to solidify if there's no like major 10x improvement over what they have. Got it. And and actually, uh, Doug, that leads uh, kind of perfectly to my next question. It was like, like what makes you know Ambient so much better at solving the current problem, kind of plaguing the AMM space than Uni or or even Curve for that matter? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I I think our big focus um, has been like circling back in the world to the question of like what, what we've been up to since 2021 is our, our big focus has been on like, how do we make the economics of Alpine sustainable? And I'm sure everyone by now is aware of, uh, right. Like Alpine isn't necessarily the most profitable, uh, in endeavor. Um, so what, what I think makes us different is the, the core platform. We have enough, uh, we have enough uh, hooks. We have enough uh, enough extensibility modular. It's not just hooks, but other other things. We have enough modularity where we can really innovate on um, on this problem. And I think I think the big thing is uh, there's really been very little innovation around like accurately pricing liquidity. So the, the model for AMMs up until now has been there's a pool, there's a fixed price in the pool, and even Uni V3 you might have different fee tiers, but but there's in a pool there's one fixed fee tier and it, it's fixed forever um so you're in the five basis point pool you're in the 30 basis point pool that's like when you think of feet feet here is like the price of liquidity um it doesn't make any sense right why is the price of liquidity the same from now until the end of the universe uh for for some it just doesn't make any sense right so um i think right like how you solve it is you accurately price liquidity um so you know we take two approaches to that one is um one is like a, a time-based model that uh, will be rolling out pr- pretty eminently um, where right, we're looking at different different periods and, and looking at, okay, what is like kind of the optimal, look, we have like a model where what's, what's the optimal liquidity fee for a period uh, when liquidity is scarce, you should charge more and liquidity is abundant and there's not much kind of volatility. Makes sense to charge less, right? To be more aggressive. And, and then even, right, we have... Uh, like in our platform, we can even start uh, building in systems where, and not just us, right? Anyone can, because we, we have we have our own idea of like how hooks work and how these things work, but like, and it will be extensible to the point where anyone can kind of build on top of this. But but we think this is kind of like the right approach, having thought of it for a while. We can start looking at, okay, where does order flow come from and say, uh, right, there's just, if, if you actually look at the data, there's a very small amount of wallets that are responsible for a huge amount, high percentage of uh, the toxic order flow. So, uh, you know, obviously they're very clever getting around whatever you put in there, but like, right, there, there are certain credible commitments of non-toxicity um, that people can make. So like, for example, if order flow comes from the CowSwap uh, router, 
that's very, very likely non-toxic because if I'm a uh, MEV shop and I'm trying to arbitrage the price of Binance, I'm not going to wait, whatever, 30 seconds for the CowSwap solver to, to, to fill me, right? Um, another example, uh, this is kind of dumb, but if order flow comes from the MetaMask router, that's also non-toxic because you're paying, <laughs> you're paying a huge <laughs> fee on top of yeah. it. So I, I wouldn't recommend using it, but the fact that like order flow is coming from that is like, uh, right from our perspective, from the perspective of liquidity, you want to be like more aggressive going after that because it's, it's not toxic. So I think like what really distinguishes us is both like in the platform itself, we've built in kind of, uh, this modularity to be so we have our own version of hooks but but i think our version kind of is a little bit superior around this to kind of price liquidity accurately and particularly around toxic flow discrimination as well as like internally like we've thought about how to build this stuff and uh you know i, I think one difference of our approach relative to uniswap when, when v4 eventually comes out is i don't think they really have any intention of, of building this infrastructure themselves mm -hmm. they're going to farm it out to other people i don't necessarily know why you would build that on, on something where they're kind of going to accrue all the value out of that, um, mm -hmm. particularly because it's like a four-year uh, closed source or business library or whatever. But yeah, I mean, we're, we intend to build this infrastructure as well. We might not build the best, but at least like we're going to build something. Yeah. Um, we've thought about it for a while. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Uh, listening to your past interviews, you know, it sounds like you guys are really going to war with Toxic Flow. And I can't <laughs> help but to notice this kind of Robin Hood feel that's around Andy. Like you used to you work yeah. in high frequency trading. You saw how everything worked on that end. And then you saw the power of AMMs like, oh, my God, the little guy, they can uh, provide liquidity, too. Uh, and like how the playing field was evened out. And then you saw like, wait a second, like all these different things are happening. Like, how can I, you know, how can the average Joe provide liquidity? Um, so going back a bit, so what exactly is toxic flow? Like what is your definition of toxic flow and what is your plan to battle against it? Sure. Sure. So, I mean, like toxic flow is really just the idea that, um, there's uh, order flow that is informed about some, some has some sort of information, um, that you, you don't have. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, like the, the, like the simplest example would be um, like kind of dumb, but like, let's say you're in a bar and somebody comes up, let's say you're an above average pool player and somebody comes up and wants to bet you a thousand dollars to play pool and you don't know anything about it. Well, unconditionally, if I'm above average pool player, I'd love to play pool against someone and bet. Uh, but, but right. The fact that the guy's coming up to me and, and betting to play pool, right. That probably means he's actually like a very, very good, he's pool shark. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like kind of the core idea is that even if you think it's good to trade at a, at a certain price, the fact that somebody wants to trade against you at that price is kind of a signal that uh, maybe they know something that you don't. Mm. So like insider trading would like be example of, of like a, a very, very simple example of toxic flow, right? Like why is someone selling like all these out of date, like, it, like all these far out of date, like options, right? Like at a certain time, right? Maybe they know something that you don't know. Um, really like what happens is like most toxic flow in the market is just stuff that happens at a very, very high frequency. So um, most toxic flow is really just uh, high frequency traders who are watching signals that change very quickly. And, and in this case, really the reality is it's mostly Binance. So, um, 
I would hope we eventually get to a point where all crypto price discovery happens somewhere other than Binance. But for the time mm. being, price discovery happens at Binance for like every major crypto asset right now. So um, really what Toxifil practically looks like today is somebody sits there, um, watches the price at Binance, waits till the price of Binance moves, and then the price of the AMM is stale because Ethereum we have you know slow, slow block times. But even if we didn't have slow block times, right, price of Binance moves, someone's going to be the first person to trade trade against it. And um, that person's right, just pumping money out of the system. And probably what they're really doing is they're, they're paying most of those profits to Flashbox or the block builder, whoever to get at the top of the block. So really, it goes to the block builder and probably indirectly goes to validators. And, and it's good, actually, probably burns a lot of theory if, if you hold yeah. a lot of ETH like me. Kind of happy about that, but not happy <laughs> from an LP perspective, because uh, those people are just straight up, like at the end of the day, you think about it, they're, they're just straight up making a ton of money and whose pocket does that come out of? Um, that's the liquidity mm -hmm. providers. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to a friend, I think a year ago, and it seems like LPs are not automated market makers. They're automated market takers because <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they are like willing to buy or sell at any price and they can't do anything about it. Um, yeah. And I think that's actually, so I, I think like a lot of people try to solve this by like having, oracles that move the price around, which kind of comes with a couple of problems. The first is that someone could front run the oracle update. But the second is you don't necessarily like need to move the price around. You just need to get paid enough for uh, for somebody to mm. take it. And that, that kind of may seem like a silly distinction. But one problem when you start moving the price around in the AMM is it breaks like all the math around it. So like it's no longer like price independent. Um, how, how things move and like then you have to like rebalance and like that it, it 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 becomes like pretty messy to do so like it's fine it's fine like that's the other thing like a war war on toxic flow we don't necessarily want like we still want arbitrage wars right like we still yeah. want the price to become in line we just want liquidity providers to be paid fairly for it so if somebody is just sitting there and watching the price at binance move and and send you know whatever right like they, they're probably they're, that's a useful service it's just mm -hmm. not whatever it's not just it's just not worth 200 million or, or whatever like the price was like in the past three months yeah. from the ETH USDC pool um and, you know and, maybe that's a couple million it should be 200 million or like whatever and what are the long-term consequences of toxic flow when it goes unchecked because if I was to make the devil's argument you know, other than having toxic in the name, what's toxic about toxic flow? Hell, it's still volume to LPs. It's hell, still, they're still earning 1%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so again, right, it's not, well, there's two ways to think about it. Like mm -hmm. one one way to think about it is like if some, it's one way to think about it is like a casino, right? If you have card counters in the casino and mm. uh, most of the participants, like the casino has an edge in most games, but you have a subset of people who have an edge or you have card counters, and you don't throw them out of the casino, like eventually the casino stops making money. Mm -hmm. um, not to say these are casinos, right? These are <laughs> important markets, but right, like same concept, right? Like the house has an edge or the players have an edge. And if you don't check the players, like eventually the house no longer has, has an edge. And it is uh, clearly, it doesn't help most players. If I'm not a card counter, card counters don't help me. In fact, it probably makes it worse because the casino is losing money and it's probably like, not going to comp my drinks or whatever anymore, but uh, 
right? Like, so it's bad from that perspective. But like you said, from an AMM actually specifically, uh, like you really, every every pool is making this trade-off between what's the IL in the pool and permanent permanent loss and, and how much fees am I collecting? And, and yeah. really like IL is actually the interesting thing about it is it really doesn't have much to do with the activity in the pool. Like it just has to do with where the price, because of this nice math of AMMs, it just has to do with where the price and so like one way to think about it is you're going to get the same IL regardless. You just want to maximize fees at the end of the day. Um, mm. so, so, so one way to think about like toxic flow and particularly like arbitrage flow is you're still going to have arbitrage flow, like arbitrage is still going to happen, but you just want to charge that flow as much as they can. So like the, the real problem isn't that toxic flow exists. The real problem is that toxic flow is not being charged enough oh. to whoever it is. I like that point. It's not that that it exists that's a problem because it's always going to be exist. So there'll always be these information asymmetries, but it's not being charged properly with the fees. Exactly, exactly. And that's where I, you have the dynamic fees come in. Exactly, exactly. So like ideally, like the, the perfect scenario would be like you have an Oracle and everybody like exactly says, oh, here's my edge on any given trade and you charge them exactly what they're their edges that's obviously can't do that but like that that's like kind of the perfect system yeah and in like the tradify world uh with toxic flow are there any remedies to it in the tradify world like have you seen anything in your previous yeah. work yeah i mean there so the tradify world is uh the tradify world is funny um because <laughs> right you get so, so one reason, like, I really like AMMs relative to order books, uh, a lot of people from, like, with TradFi background will just dismiss AMMs out of hand. I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But one reason that, like, AMMs are, are, I really like them relative to order books is you, everyone kind of participates at the same rate. So if you're a liquidity provider, I'm a liquidity provider, you know, we're all liquidity providers. We're not at war with each other. We're all in the same boat. And, like, concentrated liquidity, maybe there's some differences, but it's not, it's not huge, actually, like, if, if you look at it. Um, so we're all in the same pool. We're all in the same boat. We're all participating. Like we all are, uh, wanna like, wanna like um, make it right. Um, if mm -hmm. you're in an order book, like that, that no longer holds at all, right? Like if we're in an yeah. order book and we're market makers. We're at war with each other mm. every single day. So like the biggest thing you see is in like market makers. Uh, what's really important is like uh, getting quote unquote the front of the queue, which means like when I place my order. Um, my order is the first, like at a given price level is the first one to be executed. And it's the first in first out system. So that's like a big reason latency is like such a big deal. Cause like the first well, one reason so like the first time, like a price moves, like we're all going to be at war and like try to submit our, uh, our new, our bids as fast as possible. So we can be the first person. And if you actually like, look there, there, there are multi-billion dollar firms that do nothing they have no, like no other edge. Their edge is they're very fast and they can get at the front of the queue. So, mm. um, so That's like, exactly like Robin Hood uh, <laughs> and Citadel, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they'll all, yeah, they'll, yeah. I mean, that's another, right? Like getting order flow. So like, there's a lot of PVP games in order books that don't exist in AMMs. And, and like the unfortunate reality, like I, I think order books are, are, are good. And I think it's a lot better than like the floor system or things that came before. But like the unfortunate mm -hmm. reality is like, there are a ton of wasted resources that go not necessarily to making the market more efficient or transaction mm -hmm. costs lower for end users, but just for like these PVP games that HFTs play against yeah. each other. And that's probably if, if you're going to start an HFT shop and I, you say, okay, Doug, how could I, I'm going to make money as this? I would tell you just 
focus all your time on these PvP games. Yeah, for me personally, my favorite thing about AMMs when I first discovered them in 2020 was the fact that any token could get listed. Um, you know, I, at my first job, I helped out and worked on getting our token listed on exchanges. And man, it was such a process and a nightmare trying to, you know, fill out forms and then, you know, going back and forth. And like, there's, even if it gets listed, there's not enough liquidity. With AMMs, it's like, boom, just deploy your token. Boom, you have liquidity right there. You can run an incentive program for there to be liquidity after all. And Kit, I know you had a question about, you know, the listing process and everything. Or how they, yeah, yeah go yeah. ahead. Yeah, actually, I was going to get to that uh, a bit after this one, because then in okay. a, a, pr a previous pod, uh, Doug, you, you had mentioned something like almost a, a gifting button. And oh, then, yeah. uh, effectively, like it made me think of almost giving this user a toxicity score, right? It's almost like a <laughs> yes. score based yes. on their history of how their flow is. It's like, how toxic yes. are you, right? And then if you're the more toxic you are, the higher we charge you versus the, the other way. Could you kind of explain a bit on how you do that and how you, how yeah. you judge that? Yeah. So like, let's, let's think uh, like the Citadel Robin Hood example was good. Like, let's think about like how, like what does Citadel's relationship look like with Robin Hood, right? Like Citadel's a provide, makes a market for Robin Hood provides liquidity. Robin Hood sends order flow. That order flows uh, non-toxic and that's why Citadel is willing um, to, you know, pay, pay for that order flow. Um, right. The way like Citadel evaluates that is they know I like, I know this order flow in aggregate is very non-toxic. I don't have to look at like every single order that's coming through and evaluate it. Like I, I have guarantee, not guarantees, but like, I'm pretty sure like if an order comes through Robin hood, it's non-toxic. So I don't have to worry too much about like, Oh, is this some sort of like sharp flow or an HFT bot because Robin hood doesn't let HFTs sign up. If, if Robinhood decided to break bad and say, just run its own HFT desk inside Robinhood and send a bunch of sharp flow at cheap execution rates to Citadel, um, maybe they wouldn't turn them off uh, that day. Maybe like, like you could send a few trades through, right? Like you could like before Citadel realized what's going on, maybe you could even do it for a week, but eventually Citadel would look at the order flow and be like, well, like, fuck you, <laughs> right? Like we're going to terminate <laughs> our relationship. So, right. Like it's, it, it's a relationship that like, when you have this aggregate relationship, it can be a lot more efficient than if you're looking at every single trade in isolation. And it can be rational for both players, even like because it's a repeated game, right? So it's it's not rational for a player to like try to maximize on every single every single thing. So uh, we can do something similar with, you know, our, our vision of, of hooks where you can look at at a given participant and, you know, crypto, there's all kinds of things. What does a given participant mean? It can mean like, you know, a smart order router. It can mean even just like an entire different protocol, like liquidation, liquidations that are occurring from a lending protocol. It can mean like a relayer because we have support for uh, like off-chain signatures and then a relayer can put them on chain. So it could be a relayer. So like, but right, like we we have some notion of like this is an aggregate. This is a source of order flow in, in the aggregate, and uh, that can be measured over some aggregate period, like weeks, months, whatever. And then you can say, well, how toxic is the flow from this aggregate? And and given how toxic it is, um, right, you can start charging them less. Like same way Citadel will charge Robinhood less. And then if it does, uh, you know, starts behaving badly, uh, right, you can pretty quickly, you can look at the chain, like we can all agree on it. Um, we're really excited about like coprocessor, um, it, like technology that's being developed right now and think like, uh, this will make it really efficient, but right. You can look at it and say, Hey, this is like really toxic flow. Like 
uh, the reputation's bad, like your score goes down, you're going to pay, pay a lot more. And then, and then to your point, um, the, uh, the gift or tip tipping, uh, what we call it, right? Like you might say, okay, well, we have order flow and maybe it even is toxic because we're going to have arbitrageurs, but ideally we want those arbitrageurs to send the value they're deriving to the liquidity providers instead of flashbots. So, right, like you can start saying, okay, in a given pool, there's rules around, like you can send toxic flow, but like in aggregate, we want you to donate, say 90% of it back to the pool or, or something like that. And again, this is all on chain. It's very easy to measure over, not on a single trade because there's noise, but over a month, right? We can look at the aggregate statistical values and kind of all agree on, on these metrics. Wow. So the, the way I'm kind of hearing that now is almost like, it's like pr almost pre-MEV, you do it at like the liquidity level. So you kind of take that away from all, all the snipers and then you just effectively rearrange the blocks with the liquidity provider in mind so that all the, the toxic flow goes first, but I got to pay for it and you're going to get paid for it. And we kind of eliminate the MEV, it's like front running the front runners. You know, uh, yeah, and we, we can keep it fully composable because, again, right, like anyone can interact with the pools uh, without going through um, this facility or whatever. You're just going to you're just going to pay more. Right. Like you're going to pay, you know, probably say one percent instead of 10 basis points. So that's really cool because it, 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 everything is still fully composable. If you want to, like, completely, you know, go outside any anything like this, you, you still uh, still can. Got it. And um, let, let me switch gears a little bit and ask, ask me you a question here. And um, if I recall correctly, Dave said me used in charge like the, the BD side of things. Um, so like, what is your guys's plan of attack to attract projects to come to Ambient first and be the premier location for tokens to get listed, you know, prior to like Uniswap or any other AMMs? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess it's, we kind of have a few different fronts that we're attacking it. So, I mean, the, the first one that we kind of touched on before is, is the user experience. So, you know, if you're telling your users to go and post up liquidity on Uniswap, um, it's, it's kind of confusing or, or any other venue really. So we're trying to really refine that, uh, workflow. So, um, you know, if it's a new token, you can launch like full range liquidity, like a V2 style liquidity. And then over time in the same pool, um, that can transition to a more concentrated, you could start using limit orders and things like that. So kind of the life cycle of the token and the pool, um, we have a lot of benefits there. Um, and then the other side, which I guess we also kind of touched on is, you know, with our hooks, um, it gives a lot of scope for developers to kind of build new systems. So, um, using things like, um, so we have JIT mitigation is one. So using our hooks, you can just, you can whitelist certain, uh, wallets or addresses to do the JIT mitigation. So instead of them siphoning the fees away from the LPs, you're doing it yourself. And then you can just redirect that to the LPs yourself. Um, so that's just one example of how you can kind of, from a, a token or protocol point of view, use things like hooks to better the experience for your own users. Um, or, or you can whitelist and say, you know, if you're, if you're staking tokens on our protocol, you get cheaper fees uh, when you swap or things like that. So, and then, you know, not having this, this business license 
um, I think is another plus. So stuff like that, like where we're we'd love to work with projects on that and kind of not gatekeep it with, you know, these licenses and things like that. So that, that's kind of the main approach that we're taking. Got it. Okay, Miyu, that was actually a great soundbite. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to, to double click on that and polish it a little bit. Cause I think this could be a really good short as to like, why should a token or why should a project list with ambient first before any other AMM? Yeah, great. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, just say that last bit about how, you know, the, the JIT protection and how like the, you could redistribute that profit back to say the LPs. Yeah, so uh, using our, our hook system basically gives a lot of um, scope for developers and projects to um, set up set up their pools that that help their users. So one example is is redirecting JRT profits. So we have inbuilt JRT mitigations. Um, if you if you own the pool, you can just whitelist certain addresses to do the JIT. But instead of just stealing away those fees from the normal passive LPs, you can redirect them to your LPs or your users or wherever um, you as a protocol see fit. Awesome. I, I'm getting this, like like Dave was saying earlier in the beginning of the pod, is like this Robin Hood vibe. Not the exchange, but more of like the lore of like, you know, taking from the rich and like kind of redistributing it back to the common people, you know. Thank or at least just like leveling the playing field. I think that's what Ambient is all about. Right, right. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, mm -hmm. I think the... The kind of birthplace of AMMs was democratizing liquidity, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's why a lot of us loved it, you know, back in DeFi Summer and, and, you know, meme coins and things like that. But I think over time, the LPs have just kind of got pushed out more and more, um, you know, with things like JIT and RFQ and, um, you know, VM VAMMs with like an order book and then an AMM backing it up. Um, I think LPs are just getting kind of pushed out further and further and it's making it less and less attractive. So yeah. we're really just trying to bring that back and make it a return to tradition. <laughs> make well, LP like, great I, again. I mean, I don't, I don't think you're right. You can really have a decentralized financial system if there are six firms, right. That have to right? you're completely dependent on like six firms. Like how decentralized is that? No, that's, that's yeah. fair. And uh, you know, guys, like normally, uh, the LPers, I think the reason why they keep getting edged further and further out is they kind of get labeled as like mercenary LPs, right? You're just here to farm my token and then you're just going to dump me. So why should I be nice to you? Like, you know, do you guys have any plans around uh, token emissions and, and any of those kind of uh, posidomics, tokenomics way to attract liquidity? Can't can't officially I can't officially comment on. Cannot confirm on or any, deny. Yeah, can, cannot confirm or deny any. Uh, any plans for that but you know we, we've we've thought about that that issue quite a bit i'll say got it but if a project were to decide to use their own tokens to yeah kind of advise yeah so totally the, the way the way the way we kind of th i th at least i think about it is um i think liquidity mining incentives make a lot of sense there's definitely a space for them right because like Right, you're trying to solve for this like network problem where uh, you need like liquidity to get users, but then you're like you need especially non-organic flow for like liquidity to be sustainable. You you even see that like in, in TradFi to a certain extent, right? You have like market maker incentives um, when like stocks IPO, right? Like kind of the 
quid quo pro is like I pay an investment bank a bunch of fees and like one of the things they're supposed to do is like help make the markets liquid in uh, my new stock or or whatever. So like it definitely makes sense, right? There are reasons why like you want to internally incentivize liquidity and and we've also kind of that that's another thing like we've we've with with our hooks like we've kind of leaving a lot of scope there. I think one problem with V3 is that um, like liquidity mining is just way, way harder to do than V2. And um, I think, right, like you kind of have seen less innovation because of of that. Um, so like we're trying to make liquidity mining um, definitely an, enough space there for for innovation and particularly around like concentrated liquidity and things. Um, and I, yeah, I think it makes sense. The, the only thing I'd say is, right, like with liquidity mining or like token incentives, right, there is this um, kind of siren song where the, right, it just becomes like everything, um, right? Like there's no project isn't a project. People are just there for token incentives. Uh, the project isn't really doing anything besides token incentives. So it's like a pure Ponzi game, like in the sense that there's like, mm-hmm. so it, it's zero EV, right? Like, so someone has to lose. Um so yeah, I mean, right, it is tempting um, for projects to fall into that, but I think there's definitely a lot of scope for uh, liquidity mining incentives, that, especially those that are like intelligently designed. And you think about like, what am I using these for? Um, like, I'm not going to be able to emit these forever, right? Like, you can't just inflate forever. So like, what do I, like, this is real, real spending capital. So like, what, what am I trying to get for the capital that I'm spending? Right. And um, I actually wanted to, double click into ambient finances super product i mean feature rich product i was going through your guys's docs and what there's like surplus collateral and net settlements gasless transactions dynamic fee adjustments and then knockout liquidity on top of all of that you know in the beginning of the pod you mentioned things kept getting more and more complex Yet you guys are still trying to keep it so that economically the LPs are kind of on an evil playing field. So I love that you're pushing the edge of complexity while keeping things as fair as possible for the the, the common user. Could you share a little bit about why all these features come together and like the impact it can have on the AMM space? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like like you said, it, it's always a tough trade off between like. It's easy to come up with a bunch of features, but you kind of have to stay focused on um, a single a single vision. So sometimes, right, like there's stuff that's not in the in the protocol that uh, you know would uh, you know maybe we liked, but it doesn't necessarily go towards the core the core vision. Um, so I, I think with like all of those things that you listed and everything we have, right, like two core things uh, that have always stood out is like. We want the user experience for the ordinary person to be as seamless um, and easy as, as possible. Uh, it shouldn't be harder than using a centralized exchange at, at the end of the day or, or more boring than a centralized. So that's the other thing too, right? Like you don't, <laughs> people like to trade, right? Trading's fun. Right. So uh, we want to keep it, keep it fun and engaging. And uh, definitely our team has done, done some great work there, I, I think. And then the second thing is, is fixing the economics. So like, even like, right, like, what we mentioned is around like um, like what you've mentioned, like, for example, dynamic fees. We've talked about that. Um, the knockout orders, which are like limit orders, uh, our version of limit orders, I think, are really important because it brings a new type of liquidity provider. Uh, people want directional execution into the protocol. Um, and uh, that's that's really important because on boards, like a whole class of people that exist in like the order book space up until now haven't really existed in the AMM space. 
uh, w- without kind of falling into the PVP games that traditional limit orders fall into. And then, and then like stuff like gasless transactions, not only does that, you know, once we incorporate that into the, the protocol, not only will it make it, I think, a lot more seamless because you're not, right, and Relayer can manage transactions for you, mm-hmm. but you can use those gasless transactions to build, um, you know, different types of pools where um, you can um, start, you can, you can start, right, like, right, like you can have pools where you can use those gasless transactions and then you can have like a sequencer layer outside the pool. Uh, so with our hooks, right, like, Maybe you have a hook where you want a pool where you have like kind of fast confirmation. So you have a, a sequencer and only the sequencer can put in um, orders. And so instead of having to do like Ethereum orders and bundles and dealing with like block builders and everything, right? Like you can just do a single Ethereum transaction, put in the, the call data that corresponds to those gasless transactions and then po- post those to the pool. So like kind of a lot of those things, like it's kind of been nice, right? Like things where the economics are better often turn out to be things where like the user experience is better um, so far. Like when, when you really kind of think about the architecture and what you want out of it. That's an interesting point. Uh, that last point you said, uh, once when the economics are better, the user experience is better. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I exactly know why, but it, it just seems to be like stuff where you come up with uh, something and you're like, Oh, this makes it, you know, I, I guess one, one core reason is just because uh, right. It's not just about keeping out toxic flow. It's also the more non-toxic flow, the better for liquidity providers. So that that's a big reason why I like want the product to be engaging. Cause the more people that the more ordinary people that trade, right. The more profitable it is. For, for LPs. Yeah. You mentioned how knockout liquidity, which is your version of limit orders slash range orders is different than standard limit orders. And it's going to bring a whole new class of participants to ambient. Can we go into that a bit more? Like what, ex- and how'd you come up with the name knockout? liquidity? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm not very good at naming things uh, to be, to be honest. I always come up with names and then get better, <laughs> better names. Uh, but yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the, re- the reason they're called knockout orders is like what they really look like are they're, they're like traditional V3 range orders, but they, they live on a very kind of thin range. So like now it's 16 basis points, uh, depending on like, you know, the pool version, they could be thinner all the way down to one basis point. And, and what happens is when the price of the pool moves past uh, the end of the range, um, the order, uh, so so they participate. They they provide liquidity, the same as any other range order. But when it moves past the end of the range, they atomically get pulled out of the pool. So Uni uh, in V four has a similar, or it has like a hook, or they had like an example hook to do this. But the problem is, it's not built into the core of the pool mechanism itself. So ours are built into the, the core pool. Every single pool has knockout orders enabled, whether it has hooks or not hooks or you, so you don't, we think it's a lot simpler. We think it's kind of important enough that you want it on every, every single pool without kind of this inefficient call to an external hook to do it. Um, so yeah. And then the way it works is once you move past it, 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 once you move past the end of the range, it atomically gets filled. So even if the pool, so the problem with traditional limit order to do this is you can kind of do it, but you have to have like a keeper, you have to be watching it and like pull it out. Um, for us, even even if it happens in a flash, so say sandwich attack happens, it's the flashbots bundle, and the price like goes down ten percent because uh, Jared from Subway uh, moved the price. If if you had a limit order, uh, if you had a knockout liquidity, um, you'd get filled uh, right away. Um, mm-hmm. 
and have that position atomically locked in. So if you put it like 10% below the current price, Jared from Subway comes in and, you know, does a sandwich attack, uh, you just locked in a big profit, right? Because you just filled like 10% lower, lower than the price. Um, so it's, it's really cool from that perspective. Um, and it also like improves market quality a lot, particularly around sandwich attacks, because it makes sandwich attacks a lot more costly. Um, right. Cause now mm-hmm. all the, the traditional problem with AMMs is all the liquidity on the way down is available on the way up. Um, so it, it, you know, to the extent they're used, um, it kind of dissuades sandwich attacks as well. Just yeah. to add on to that, uh, you're also getting you're getting the liquidity provider fees for your limit order, so you you essentially become a maker instead of a taker. So instead of you know putting in a limit order through a keeper bot or some other system, you're still paying the swap fee. You actually earn the fees with that. So the tables have turned. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It's just like how because right now the way I use Unity V three sometimes I just put like literally the one tick ban and then once it kind of clears I have to go in and pull it myself. Right. Ex- except now it's ah, just it should automatically should be using ambient. Yeah. For you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's exactly that. Yeah. And, and, and then there's yeah. there's this one more thing um, that I saw. You guys have the ambient liquidity as well on all the fees earned. So it kind of auto compounds right away for you. Could you kind of explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so the way like it works in V3 and I I think it actually still works this way in V4 as well is um, fees are just accumulated in the side pocket. Um, So like you have a swap, it it goes through um, like it collects the fees. Uh, Someone someone pays the fees and and some side and then it just goes, sits in the side pocket and uh, you have to kind of manually go in and harvest it because it's not earning any anything. So, so what happened? Our AMM mechanism, we still collect those fees, but as soon as they're collected, they immediately get reinvested back into um, ambient liquidity or, or basically full range liquidity. And so, your fees are still providing um, liquidity and therefore earning earning fees on top. So they don't earn it at the same concentrated rate, um, but the trade-off rate also, I guess, if you go out of range, you're still kind of earning a little bit of liquidity. So your fees are earning fees. Your Your fees fees are earning earning fees. fees. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. We we think it's right, like both useful increases liquidity in the market and, you know, users, you don't want your capital sitting there. Uh, Speaking of fees, uh, something you mentioned earlier as well is your dynamic fee setup that you have. And I completely understand what you mean by this. Because uh, at my previous job, I worked at Gelato and I worked on GUni. And I remember when we created the, the Maker, I mean, the, the DAI USDC pool is originally 0.05. And that was the ah, original yeah. one. And then they came out with uh, 0.01. Uh, and then we had, to, <laughs> we had to like create a pool for that. And you had to like move all, try to move all, attract all the liquidity over to that pool. Uh, and in a previous interview, you actually described, uh, you know, with your dynamic fees as a kind of a price discovery vampire attack <laughs> yeah. on uni pools. Uh, so can we go into, you know, dynamic fees a bit more? And don't you think on a long enough timescale, though, like fees are just a race to the bottom and eventually they're just be like the lowest, you know, yeah. fee rate possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So, yeah. So like our, our fee model. So, you know, we have different fee models depending on the pool. And, and again, these are our like canonical pools. And again, we'll be opening um, pools to, you know, open hooks. So like if, if you create a pool with, with your own hooks, you can put in your own dynamic 
fee system. So the in, innovation's kind of open there, but uh, again, this is what we think is the right model for uh, our, our primary pools right now. But the, the idea is it, Uniswap's kind of this canary. Uh, the nice thing about it is because it has these fixed fees, it's always like this running experiment of at least five or 30 or one or 100, which mm -hmm. fee tier is the best. And it's very easy to measure because it's on chain and just say, okay, in the past, 10 minutes, what or uh, past 30 minutes, past whatever, what what pool has done, what pool has done the best. Uh, and so like, that's kind of a, a very cool thing. So yeah, that's why we call it a, a price discovery vampire attack, because uh, the, the I guess the uni LPs are kind of doing the hard work for us. Um, eventually, right, like where it's uh, with every token, it's not always going to have uni reference pools. So we do have a separate model that's based on like our internal pools and, and kind of uses this feedback loop to say like, what's the volatility in the pool and uh, other things like that. And um, so, and that that's purely on chain as well. Um, so that that's like the cool part. Um, that's the cool part there with the dynamic fees. I think the, the, the underlying economics behind that is that uh, kind of something I mentioned earlier, the price of liquidity at any given time shouldn't be the same. So when markets are very volatile, um, you know, HFTs do the same thing, right? They widen spreads because there's a lot of demand for liquidity and there's not a lot of people supply. Uh, inventories get filled up. Uh, people stop quoting. Um, you know, central order books or it's even centralized exchanges will start. Liquidity gets thinner. So um, it makes sense. If you have an AMM pool, you should charge more for liquidity during the times when, you know, people are really willing to pay up for it. Um, and then uh, to, to your point, will, will fees go to zero? Um, I don't think so, right? Because like even with HFTs where you don't have like kicks up, like eventually, right? Like there's still a cost to the capital. There's still a cost to uh, liquidity providers or like short convexity. Um, I think during periods... There might be during some periods where fees get very, very low because there's not competition. Um, but I think during periods of high volatility, when markets are really moving, um, there's just not going to be enough liquidity to fill demand. And so I think particularly if you have a dynamic fee model, uh, and HFTs work that way too. Like oftentimes you'll see an HFT will make hardly any money. And then like one day is almost your, your P&L for the year because there's yeah. like a flash crash or whatever. So I, I think that's the model. Yeah, honestly, that's how you see Curve kind of work. Like Curve, the fees are like kind of flat, and then all of a sudden there's a day of a ton of volatility, <laughs> and then boom, the fees just skyrocket. Which actually yeah. uh, transitioned to you know my next question pretty well. Uh, also in the news, uh, we saw the Bank of International Settlements for Project Marina adopt Curve's AMM port to uh, trade uh, wraps. Oh. Yeah, wrap CBDCs on like a, on a I think it's a. I'm not sure if it's AMM or VAMM or something, but it's basically using a curves model. And so what that leads me to ask is like, what is your react? What, did, what is your reaction to institutional adoption of AMMs? And I know something you talked about in the past is you hope to see Microsoft futures <laughs> traded on Ambient in the future. Not just Microsoft futures, Microsoft stock. Microsoft stock. Yeah, uh, well, futures as well, though. Yeah, it all. So um, <laughs> does Ambient have like a plan to target institutions in, in the future? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, fr from one perspective, we're just trying to build, uh, the court protocol. I think other people may have more skills in terms of us and, and, and better relationships in terms of onboarding institutions. So we're trying to build a platform, um, 
where, you know, people can kind of build whatever vision of a liquidity pool that they want. Um, so like, be honest, probably the biggest thing to onboard institutions right now is like KYC. Um, a lot of institutions don't want to trade an AMM pool unless they know everyone else in the pool. Um, so like that obviously can be done with, with hooks. Um, can argue, right. That's like against the spirit of, of crypto. We're neutral on that, right. People can build that or, or not build that, um, use it if they want. Um, but in terms of, right, just onboarding institutions, I think like the first thing, just on, such as institution, like at the end of the day, Citadel doesn't want to trade with jump a uh, hundred times a day, right? Like you still, you still need organic users. So I, I think like a lot of people in this space get, oh, if I bring an institution, then I'll be fine. But like a lot of times you need, you need a mixture of markets or an ecosystem, you need both. So um, I guess that would be like, first thing is let's fix the economics. And then I think if AMMs are clearly better than order books, which I, I believe they actually can be right. Better than centralized. I believe actually you can get better, um, execution. Uh, I think the economics are better because more people can participate in providing liquidity. And the reality is like HFTs have very, very high, uh, hurdle rates for return on capital. So like once AMMs actually are working, I think the reality is you can actually get better than than nasdaq um so, so i i think if the economics are there um the players the players will come okay wow um that actually it, it got me thinking a little bit earlier in the in the conversation doug that you had mentioned how ambient would compete against kind of like all the other routers to get the the order flow come to you could you kind of explain a little bit how a router works and how does competition in kind of like the, the router space works? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like, um, like, a, right. Like the typical like order router will have some preset universe of liquidity sources. So if it's the Uniswap router, obviously they're just going to look at Uniswap. Um, or I think they just look at, you know, I'm 90% sure they just look at Uniswap. Um, if it's the MetaMask router, right, they'll be hooked into, um, you know, a bunch of different liquidity sources, um, probably most likely Uniswap, but, you know, there's other longer tail sources of liquidity. Um, you know, one inch does the same thing, right? So, like, they're kind of abstracting away the liquidity from the order flow. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, right, and the idea is, right, they get the best, they get the best price um, for, for the end user. Um, so, like, being aggressive and in that type of order flow makes a lot of sense because uh, to the extent you think it's non-toxic. So they're like kind of different conditions, but like a lot of times, depending on the router, it's, it's pretty non-toxic. So if you're connected to those routers, what you can even start doing as a pool is you can say, hey, I know this order flow is non-toxic. So not only can I like set my fee rate, but I can look at the price like relative to the other pool, um, like the smart contract. And I can say, okay, like to be able to win against Uniswap or like whatever these other things are on the router, I know that I like, I, I can sit, given the price in my pool and the fee, right? I can set my fee to here and I can probably, probably win, um, win the order flow. And, and since it's not talk, like if it's non toxic, like you almost want to take it at any, any fee rate, as long as it's above zero. So we, we've been looking at that. Um, so I guess like an order flow vampire attack, and we're kind of in the early stages of looking at that, but where we have order flow that we know is non toxic, um, we can actually even directly look at the Uniswap prices and just always set the fee to be like, you know, one basis point lower. Uh, so like the effective swap rate is one basis point lower. 
Got it. And, and you, you guys have launched for almost like a, a month now, right? Or so give or take from uh, Difa Lama yeah. shows you guys started early June. Like have how has that played out in the uh, actual, you know, in production? Have you guys been beating out other routers or? or... Yeah, it's a process to get on on the routers. Um, we have to get like it's all this chicken and egg problem, especially uh, we don't have a token as of yet to incentivize liquidity. So um, it's it's a, right. I think we've been steadily growing liquidity for kind of our early our, our goals early on have been um, to always kind of valid, especially on the product side, validate product market fit, make sure people are understanding the product. We have some tweaks tweaks there and. Uh, now I think we're kind of ready to be pretty creative on the, the protocol on the economics side. Any hints? <laughs> uh, well, mostly what we talked about. And again, can't, can't talk about some of the, uh, whether we have a token or, or won't have a token or anything like that. Of course. I mean, I'm still hung up on the fact that he said the word yet. No token yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cannot confirm nor deny. If, if slash <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, so last, last question on, on my end is like, what are the keys to building a successful AMM and what does success look like for Ambient? Yeah, uh, Miu, actually, do you, you have any yeah, thoughts on that? I, I, I love to hear from both of you, but let's start with Miu. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I guess it's such a nascent space still, you know, it's only a few years old. Um, so it's kind of a lot to lot to figure out but i guess what our focus is and the way we're thinking about it is obviously the economics behind you know LPing and um and the kind of general market um state you know um but then i guess more specifically i think our focus on the end user and the product is um going to be a big driver for us so I think I think it's fairly clear from the the web app that we're putting a lot of effort into that to try and make everyone's life easier, do a lot of tools to help that. So, I th I think that's kind of the the two pronged approach that we're basically taking to kind of set us set ourselves up for success. Got it. A better product and a better experience. And and me, let me. Do, what does success look like for Ambient? Is that like a TVL number? Is that a volume number? Is that like you are the best router <laughs> uh, in the game? <laughs> I mean, I we kind of don't think that TVL is a great metric, and I think most people kind of agree with that. Um, so TVL is probably not the metric. I mean, it's 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 a start for how to measure success, but. Um, we kind of think of it more as, you know, stuff like at tick liquidity and things like that. So, um, but I think the, the ultimate success would probably be the place for price discovery. Um, mm, I think that's kind of, if we, if we get to that point, that's kind of when we can say it's a success, I guess. How do you know if you get to that point? <laughs> Achievement <Good> unlocked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, right, you can, like, probably the simplest way is like, volume is also, like you asked about that, volume is also a gameable metric, right? Like you can have a USDC dipole with zero bips and you're going to have a lot of volume. And that's great. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd say, right, like it, it's almost like you kind of know it when you see it. Um, if you mm -hmm. ask people now, where's price in any market, crypto, anything, where does price discovery happen? Um, I think most everyone agrees with it but i think probably the biggest thing is you're the default destination 
for trades. So, mm. um, you know, if somebody's going to fire off a trade and it's going to you most of the time, then you probably where price discovery is happening. Got it. Ambient Got versus it. Binance. That's, that's another way of saying that. Ambient versus the world. <laughs> ambient, yeah, ambient, amb, ambient versus NASDAQ. Right. Ambient that's versus NASDAQ. Yeah. Ooh, that's for aim higher. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Doug, I, I guess. David versus your lion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Doug, if you can kind of uh, end the um, pod here with like a high note, it's like, what does success look like for you? For me personally. Yeah, with with, with Ambient, because coming from your background, yeah. that's like, you know, yeah. being literally in the trenches. I'd say yeah. see, the biggest thing I would say successful, like I, I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of TradFi, especially HFT people are skeptical of AMMs. I think if we can build something where people start really sweating, at least in terms of people start, people start talking about AMMs as like, not just like an on-chain thing, but like as an actual, as the actual like future of, of market microstructure in general, then I'd say uh, that, that that would make me really happy. Nice. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to close out the interview. But before we go, before the end of every interview, we'd like to do a little lightning round just to get to know you guys a little bit more and on a lighter note. Um, and yeah, Kit, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, this is just to kind of get to know you as the, you know, the man, the person behind the builder. The cat right? girl. The, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the individual behind the PFP. So uh, let, let's start with me, you for this one and just come right. Uh, the first answer that comes to your mind. What was your virgin crypto experience? When did you first touch the blockchain and sexes doesn't count? Uh, it would have been like. 2020 um yeah what did you do Use, using uh ethereum uh i think i just i sent some usdc from a centralized exchange and then bought ethereum on chain nice yeah nice doug how about you <laughs> probably a similar story it would probably be back in before i did crypto full-time like i think 26 I think the first time I was actually sending a Litecoin between two, two exchange. I think from Coinbase to Binance, I was sending a Litecoin. Um, Bitcoin was too slow. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, okay. The second question is what is your favorite off chain touch grass activity? What are some of your hobbies and interests? Let's start with Doug here. <sighs> uh, you know, I, I have two two young kids, so it's it's mostly if I if I do a free time from AFK, uh, mostly try to spend it playing with my kids. Solid. Me, you? Uh, yeah, I've been kind of I've been playing guitar a lot again lately, so that's kind of been um, in my main go to, I guess. Nice, cool. Uh, I'll take the next one. Uh, me, what would be some advice you'd have for your younger self uh just just start just start just do just things. send it yeah just, just do things yeah just do things um <laughs> stop stop waiting um it's there's never a perfect moment i guess you just gotta you just gotta go uh and doug to you i'd say uh probably more skate to where the puck's at and kind of a big reason I'm in crypto now. It's not the biggest market in the world yet, but I think it's probably the, the future. So um, I think a lot of people go for, you know, whatever the biggest or most prestigious 
thing is instead of uh you know i'd, I'd focus on things you know what's gonna what what's world gonna look like in 10 years mm. so what do you want to be working on today for that skates to where the puck is going <laughs> good advice and the question on my end is if you weren't in crypto nor in finance what would your professional career be let's start with doug here yeah i i love software so i've definitely some, some sort of tech thing I, I just i just really like software um really like coding so it definitely would be something in, in the tech space i don't know what um oh, probably SaaS to be honest i would hope something more interesting but probably SaaS. b2b SaaS. <laughs> got it all right me you um i mean i have i probably would be doing my design background you know architecture mm-hmm. landscape architecture but i I've really kind of fallen in love with, you know, the web design and product design side. So if I, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be doing, doing product design or something like that. Yeah. We, me, me would be at, at my B2B SaaS. We'd be <laughs> selling <laughs> enterprise software. What a timeline. Uh, <laughs> and final question, uh, Miu, who do you think should be the next guest on Flywheel? Who would you recommend? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, there's so many good accounts. Uh, I know. <laughs> um, one person. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is Emily, actually. Um, oh, from eGirl. From eGirl, yeah, and and, and Alchemia. I, th- I think she's a she's a great person. So, mm-hmm. and she actually, uh, fun fact, she put Doug and I in contact yeah. with each other initially. Yeah. Oh wow. So, yeah. I'm a big Doug, fan. Okay. To you, who uh, do you I would so I'd say balance out my pro AMM uh, propaganda. I don't know if you guys know uh, DeFi guy or, or OX shit trader is his Twitter handle, but um, <laughs> he's building uh, a, a claw, a new cloud protocol ellipsis on on Solana, and mm. he he can speak very intelligently and and maybe would give a, a kind of a balanced. Huh perspective interesting good good choices good choices all around and on that note on that note uh guys doug me you thank you so much for coming on you know we got deep in the amm deep in like liquidity and uh yeah uh thanks for coming on and we'll we'll, we hope to see you guys again soon awesome well had a fantastic time thanks for having us yeah thanks guys this was a great chat thank you thanks boys GM, everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Flywheel. We had on the Ambient Fellas, and now it's time for the postgame. So thank you for joining us. We went deep into everything Ambient, everything about AMMs, you know, Doug's prior history, high-frequency trading. We really covered a lot of bases in this episode. Uh, Kit, uh, what was your favorite part? Oh, man. Let me just take a second and shake it out because I felt like I used so much of my brain power just trying to understand the mm-hmm. kind of the mechanics of Ambient and also uh, their battle and the war against Toxic Flow. Yeah. I, I think yeah. my favorite part was what Doug brought to the table and obviously what, what me you brings to the table as well, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think my favorite part was when, you know, hearing them and hearing how but, but what kind of perspective they've built Ambient from uh, and just immediately clicks with me like, oh, these guys are the Robin Hood of DeFi. They're trying to, you know, 
represent the common man, the everyman, you know, allowing them to, you know, either participating in LPs and just ultimately leveling the playing field. And I think that's what Ambient is all about. And it's just really refreshing to see, especially when you see this turn towards like business licenses and towards like quote unquote institutions and like more privileged actors, quote unquote, with Ambient, they're like, hey, you know, we're trying to help the little guy. And at the end of the day, better economics and a, equals a better training experience and LP experience overall. And I think that's a very positive flywheel that is often overlooked. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think they are, for lack of a better term, making LP great again. You know, there was a big issue. Make, yeah, that's where, what I thought. Make yeah. LP great again. Make LP great yeah. again. And I, I, th I think they're going to come in and, and do it right. Like, if you looked at their documentation, like their feature set is so fat, like pH fat, and it's all under the hood. pH so fat. It, it abstracts away from the complexity for the user while still giving the user all the benefits. Like you said, better, better economics leads to better product experience and it's just kind of like a, a guiding light that they have. And I, I, I love this underdog energy. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, they just launched and I'm excited to see, you know, them grow and how they're evolving in the future. I found it interesting that, you know, they announced in 2021 and they basically didn't even release their V1 at all. They waited until their V2 and to release their first product. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think they would have been better off if they released their V1? I, I, seeing the innovations that they have done, I think it may have been worth it for them to wait it out and like to mm -hmm. see all of the flaws of all the other systems and then implement like an improvement. I'm normally in the camp of like, you know, like I'm pretty, I'm sure you are too, is just ship it and let the market tell you what's wrong with it and then improve in production. I'm more uh, in that camp, but I think in their case, since they're mm -hmm. trying to go after that true primitive again, they're kind of redefining mm -hmm. what a quote unquote AMM should provide on the base level, just like how infinity pools works. You know what I mean? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought there's, I mean, there's so many different parts we go into. What did you think of Doug's background uh, previously in high frequency training and at Citadel? So he was on like the other side before. And yes. now he's, you know, now he's playing this Robin Hood role. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like, I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure if it was uh, off camera or it was in the recording, but how like success for him was like, oh, it wasn't, but how success for him personally was when all the folks that pretty much denounced AMM or just denounced crypto as a whole. And that he really has this, um, you know, driven motivation to prove them wrong and show mm -hmm. them that, like, no, like this is where the puck is going. Like, I, I like that about his background. Like I, you can kind of tell that he's making a bet on crypto and it coming from his experience he's bringing all of that learning to the table. But how about you, yeah. Dave? What, what, what do you think about him working on the dark side, as, as you said? <laughs> I think that's how he got all his experience and like seeing how, firsthand how these, you know, market makers and operators operate, um, you know, gave him kind of the foundation to build, you know, ambient today. I agree. He, he kind of gave me like a, a little rebel vibe too, you know? He, oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like he's, he's definitely like a, oh. a rebel. Uh, I, I have a good question for you. Uh, what do you think uh, Ambient can work on and like what risk do you think they should watch out for? Great question. I I think 
at the end of the day, it is about capital L liquidity. And can they retain it? And well, first, can they attract it? And then second, can they retain it? Because the reason mm-hmm. why Uniswap becomes like the de facto place is frankly because there's just a ton of liquidity and that mm-hmm. liquidity and is a ton of loyal kind LPs. Of dumb. A ton Which of loyal Doug LPs. A, yeah, exactly. Doug mentioned exactly. in the previous interview. Yeah, a, t- a ton of loyal LPs who are kind of used to getting beaten on, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of used to get jitted. They're used to getting slapped in the face with all the ILs. So, like, how do you mm-hmm. kind of convince this base to kind of migrate over to you? Or how do you even develop a new base completely? A lot of education is going to be required. So I think doing more of these kind of pods or, you know, getting mm-hmm. uh, their, their solutions and product features out there, I think it is a huge challenge for them. Yeah. It's really feature rich. If you don't read the docs, if you don't watch the pods, like you're not going to kind of get it. And yeah. I can a good it. example, like uh, Dave, I'll show you. In the UI, if you click on one of the candles, it'll show oh, you the you transaction that's in that candle. And I'm like, how? Why is that not advertised? And why is that not standard across Deck Screener or any of these other websites in which you kind of like you know track and use the candles? Like it's so obvious that it, it kind of should be. But yeah, how about you, Dave? Yeah. What do you think are, are their biggest risks, and what do you advise them to kind of? Um, work on well they have all the tech and they're doing innovative stuff but i think their biggest challenge is on the bd side and being able to attract projects and be like hey like come here uh you you guys should you know first uh supply you know supply liquidity for your project here because it's so vital because 80 percent of all volume for a token happens within you know a week or like a month of listing like most Mm, of the volume will happen at that time so it's key it's absolutely key for you know for any amm to get like be like the first like go to so that's why it's so interesting seeing like uniswap v2 you know so around and so you know you had uh you know pepe and all the meme coins that's on uni v2 because it has that brand name and it's easy so i think the biggest challenge for them coming up is being able to do the bd and be like hey like come here, you should list here. And you know, Sushi had pretty good BD in 2021 because they had their token incentives and mm-hmm, everybody mm-hmm. was like listing on there. You just swap, you know, they they still had the V2 uh, mechanics and everything. But uh, now like you need v, you know, V2 is still like a go-to and whatnot. So I would say BD. Right, right. And, um, and also, I, yeah. you brought up a good point with Sushi about like, remember Sushi had like, I forgot what it was called. Is it called Miso Launchpad or something like that? Oh, they had the Launchpad. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they also have like an actual launch product. Uh, I, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't get to ask about that because when we asked Miyu, he was basically saying how like our product is the best and it will shine through. And you know, yeah. I, I don't know if I fully subscribe to that. I, I, I think you might need you to need do a little bit more handholding. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason VHS beat out Betamax. Right. And yeah. arguably the uh, worst product, right? So. Yeah. Oh, and I, I have a, one more question for you, or like one more point. So in the interview, at one point, I heard the term cost of capital uh, thrown out there. Mm-hmm. And I immediately was flashback to our interview with Chidao and, uh, you know, Pablo pa- pa- yeah, no, talking about cost of capital. Yeah, cost of capital, cost of capital. And it had me thinking about capital in another way, especially with their dynamic fees. Um, and basically, you know, the more volume there is, you know, the dynamic fee increases and the cost of capital goes up. And, so, and if the volume goes down, then basically the cost of capital goes down. So what are your thoughts on, you know, how they think about cost of capital? 
I think that is very well. The, the way they're kind of saying it is it, slightly different. It's like the dynamic fees is to offset the n- amount of toxic order flow to you, right? Yeah. If you see, so I, I think it's really clever because remember, I think this was off camera, but he described how, Doug described how a router works, and they effectively prioritize a couple parameters from price to fees to gas costs. And they kind of frankly net it out into a single number, and whichever router gives the best number there would r- win a the the order flow. But if you know this order flow is toxic, then you kind of don't even want to bid on it, right? You, yeah, like you, exactly. You, you don't even want to be included. But it's if this toxic, order flow, no. yeah. So so if you do, you know, if you kind of have to include it, you're like, well, I want to get paid more for taking this toxic order flow, so I'm going to mm-hmm. increase my fees. Like that's what he meant by the dynamic fee adjustment. And an example of that was during periods of high volatility, like during the circle and USDC DPEG. During that time, if you were to be an LP, you should be charging one percent exactly. spreads, right? Like, <laughs> like yeah. or even more. So that you can you know that people are gonna come more. and whack you. Yeah. So I, I think that is very interesting and how they're doing it for you dynamically without I, I mean, I would imagine the LP doesn't need to do anything, right? They'll just be like, Yes please automatically adjust my fees for me. I want to get paid more. I, th- I think that yeah. is um, absolutely critical. And then it would make me as an LP, my cost of capital would effectively, you know, go down because I'm getting paid mm. just for my idle capital. So for when I do trades elsewhere, like my cost of capital now effectively kind of goes down because I'm getting paid on this other mm-hmm. idle capital that I- I'm working on. So I, I think mm-hmm. that was um, a really cool thing. Um, but yeah. Dave, actually, I, I got a question for you. It's like, h- how did you feel about like um, when they first started, uh, you know, CrocSwap in, in, in their V1? They didn't even launch it and they only launched their V2 and they waited to learn from the failures of uni and learns from the failure of curve. Like, do you mm-hmm. feel that is the right way to launch a product? Um, I don't know if it's, the, I would say usually no, but I think in their case, yes. I think it was actually a very smart and strategic move not to launch your V1 because one, like your V1 is like your, your V1. It's There's gonna be a ton of things to improve on. And two, you kind of saw like at the time they, announced you saw like a huge wave of AMMs, whether it was sushi swap, you know, gaining a bunch of ground, whether it was like forks on other chains, like pancake swap, quick swap. If they entered at that time, they would have been in a really crowded field. And like in mm-hmm. it would have been a lot harder to attract liquidity. But now um, you know, you saw a lot of experience played out. A lot of these AMMs are 90% down in volume and in TVL. And it right now, especially in like the middle of the bear, quote unquote, it's actually the perfect time to like come out with some innovation and to come out with their deck. So like learn, you know, just sitting, waiting, learning, observing, taking in everything, and then launching when the time was right, is right, which I think is now. And now they're ready. Now they're just sitting in the water, ready to catch the next wave when a whole new host of participants come in. And if I'm like an everyday trader or a retail trader, and this is the exchange that's the Robin Hood exchange that is like fighting for you. Like I am like, you know, I am like would be more predisposed to like go trade on Ambient. And so like I think like yeah. that's why, because they're they're about to like catch the wave of the new participants. And they really if I think if they get their marketing and messaging correct, 
um, it'll just be a you know a positive flywheel in that. Right. The the ethos of Robinhood, yeah. not the, the Robinhood exchange that sells your order flow to Citadel. Yes. Not not, not that one. <laughs> not not that one. Yeah. yeah no. And Jeff, um, I'm yeah, I'm really excited to see what they're doing, and you know, we'll definitely keep an eye on them. And if you want to keep up with everything we're doing here at Flywheel, make sure you hit that bell button, subscribe, leave us a like, let us know what you think of this one in the comments. Love it or hate it, we want you to hear from you. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Join the conversation on Telegram at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDay22. You can follow me at 0xCapital underscore K. Subscribe to our Substack, FlywheelDefi.com. And we'll see you next week. Peace. Everything said on this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.